Folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. Times get tougher even if they don't. Today is August the 14th, 2020. This is episode, what the hell episode is it? 2712 of the Survival Podcast. You know what day it is. Friday, 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 time for the Expert Council Q&A show, the Monster Truck of the Week, where instead of monster trucks, we have monster questions and monster answers. Here's what I've got for you today. I've got a quote of the day for, for you today from Henry David Thoreau, and I bet you think it's some kind of, like, you know, nature quote or something. It's not. Very liberty-oriented. I think you'll like it. Uh, Nicole Sauce has uh, stuff for you on preserving oranges, really orange juice, uh, through making syrup and freezing it, and expanding a business. The first one was so easy to do that she just decided to, to, to be awesome sauce like always and do two questions at once. Got a question from Jake out in the audience. Uh, not that Jake, other Jake. Magnesium and potassium for those living the keto lifestyle with Dr. Ken Berry. Choosing between DeWalt and Oregon for a cordless pole saw with Tim the Toolman Cook. A question about investing in distance education as an investment opportunity right now due to a massive shift with John Pugliano. Derek Bonpietro is going to talk about the quest for a really good used workhorse SUV, not a, a, a kid uh, cart arounder soccer game SUV, a workhorse one. Earthworks for temperate climate clay soil property. And uh, I'm going to have... Jeff Lawton answer that. And I'm going to give you like a short follow-up to Jeff's answer. It has really nothing to do with the, what Jeff lays out because it's great. It's going to be a way for y'all that are thinking like, do I do earthworks? Do I do swales? Do I do whatever? Because my property is fill in the blank. To think differently about it. Because, well, I'll save it until we get there. And then I have a question. Garden Bounty is starting to come in. Lots of stuff coming in. A lot of y'all have switched to keto living. Great. Probably going to help you save your life, or at least extend it, I would say. Um, but now, like, well, some of this stuff's got carbs, some of it doesn't. What do I do with all this stuff now, now that I'm living this totally different life? And I'll tell you how to not not get rid of it, not 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 be able to use it. I'll, I'll talk to you about how to see this differently, but it's going to be, as always with me, it depends. We'll get to all of that in just a moment. Let's start out with that quote by Thoreau. How about this for Henry David Thoreau, guys? Disobedience is the true foundation of liberty. The obedient must be slaves. Disobedience is the true foundation of liberty. The obedient must be slaves. We've been led to believe that just because something is a law that it's it's moral. That's what we've gotten to. Like, well, you know, this thing was totally okay to do yesterday, but they passed the law today and said not to do it, so only bad people do it now. Or this thing was not okay to do yesterday because there was a law against it, and now we removed it, so now it's a completely moral thing to do. This is, this is, this is moronic thinking. Something's either moral or not. A law does not create morality. A law does not create morality. There's plenty of things that are completely legal to do right now that, that, that most people would agree are immoral. Even I would say that's, that's probably an immoral act. It's probably something you shouldn't do. It's probably a bad thing to do. And there's also a lot of things that maybe we wouldn't say that they're immoral, but they're, they're bad choices that shouldn't be made. That if you want to live a healthy, healthy, happy life, 
you, you, you probably shouldn't do that. So there's nothing that stops you from grow, going out every week, for instance, and buying a giant mega pack of freaking Snickers bars and M&M's. And every day eating a couple handfuls of M&M's in a jumbo Snickers bar. There's no law against that. I wouldn't call it immoral. I'm sure some people with the whole body as a temple thing could come up with some way that it's immoral. I wouldn't call it immoral. You're choosing to, to live a way that you want to live. I, I'm not going to judge your morality on that. You're not hurting me by doing it. But I think we would all agree that it's probably a bad idea. That doesn't mean that I want to pass a law that says you can't do it. Because that's not the purpose of a law. A true law, a real law, a law that has any purpose exists, it doesn't even exist for the purpose of what you would just consider some sort of abstract form of morality. It exists solely for the purpose of protecting people from other people. At its base, it is to the, for the protection of individual rights. If we protect the right of the individual, we have nothing left to worry about. The individual is the smallest minority that exists. If we truly cared about individual rights, it wouldn't matter what color anybody was or what sex they were or what clothes they wore or what sex they pretended to be or whether they thought they were a freaking dog for all that matter. Everybody has the same equal right to be left alone. That's the primary right of all human beings, to be left alone. You don't have a right to, to have anything, but you have a right to keep what you've rightfully acquired. How simple is this? And what that means is there's a, a slew of laws, regulations, and codes that have nothing to do with the protection of individual rights. And if they are such that they impede your rightful pursuit of happiness, the true foundation of liberty is to be disobedient. Those who would be obedient to things that do not protect anyone else that do not do anything to defend individual rights and serve only to require people to be obedient to the state are slaves. Now, let's think about that a little bit pragmatically, though. I'm not saying that you should run around with a t-shirt that says, I'm breaking 17 laws a day, and then make sure you take, videotape yourself doing it. I think there's strategic ways to do this. Let's look at an example. I said today on, on social media, I'm, I'm really excited to see the answers that come back. What percentage of people that were honestly heroes of history? Not they told you they were here. They were honestly, if you look at that person, go, that person's actions were heroic. What percentage of those people, the very reason that they're considered heroes is because they broke the law? I'm thinking somewhere in the 80 percentile. I think it's somewhere in, 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 in the 80 percentile. Here's an example. How about people like my wife's family? Her father, her brother, her, her, her uncles and aunts, and her grandparents were in Holland, or I'm sorry, the Netherlands, during um, World War II. They were part of the underground. And they hid Jewish people and helped them get out of the country through the underground risking their lives in violation of clearly what was the legal law of the land. Was that heroic? I say, damn well, yes it is. So, if we apply this concept that you should not engage in a behavior only because it is illegal, 
and therefore you're bad if you engage in that behavior, then what did those people, what would those people have done? Here's a Jew, come get him. Here's a Jew, come get him. That's what they were legally supposed to do. And when you say stuff like that, people go, well, come on. We don't do, this is America, we don't do things like that. Yeah, I guarantee if you went to Germany before the rise of Hitler, they would have said, come on, this is Germany. We don't do things like that. By the way, a lot of their crazy-ass ideas that we ended up having to fight a Second World War to get rid of, they came from the United States. I'm just saying. You want to know where the history of eugenics began? It wasn't in Germany. It wasn't with Goebbels. It was right here in America. The day you start heading toward a place where the unthinkable can happen is the day that you decide that it can't happen here. That can't happen here. That, that probably means that sooner or later it's going to happen here. And the only way that you can fight against tyranny is disobedience that leads to liberty. So back to my point, it doesn't necessarily mean you do it in the open. The people that hid, hid, hid Jews and got them out of the occupied territories during World War II didn't put up a sign that says, hey, I help free Jews. They just did it, and they did it the best that they could under the circumstances And they made a difference, not because they said something, but because they did something and they got it done. Because every single person that got out that wouldn't have was one less person in a gas chamber. And we live in a world where we think we have to be making these giant, huge, momentous things happen to be making a difference. But getting one person out, or keeping one dollar out of the hands of the state, they may not be equal to me. But they are both important. They are both important. Disobedience is the true foundation of liberty. The obedient must be slaves. With that, let's get into some uh, some stuff today. Let's talk to Nicole Sauce here about preserving orange juice and saving space in the freezer while doing it and expanding a business as divergent as those are. She has a great answer for both. Howdy, everyone. This is Nicole Sauce from the Living Free in Tennessee podcast with an expert counsel set of questions. First one comes from John. John in Moore Park. He asks, is it safe to freeze orange syrup for an extended period of time? Details. I'm looking for ways to preserve a bountiful orange harvest from my mom's tree. Freezing boiling down juice into ice cubes will reduce the storage space in my overpacked freezer. I'm thinking a syrup will keep better orange flavor than just a reduction. Okay, John, here's the deal. The answer to your question is yes. That's it. However, um, your analysis of what will preserve flavor better than the other, I think it doesn't matter. You can do syrup, which will take up more space than just the reduction, or you can just do the reduction and make syrup on the way out. But if freezer space is an issue, you might want to consider canning the juice or syrup instead of freezing it. And to do that, you just make the juice without a bunch of the pithy bits in there. So you avoid the bitter flavors. Then you raw pack it in mason jars, leaving a half inch of headspace and you water bath can it for 10 minutes. If you're going to pressure can it, then it's a six minute period of time. But honestly, if you can water bath can something safely and fruit juice is a high acid thing, so you can do that. It's better because it's not as hot and it doesn't downgrade as much in quality. I would give both a try, compare them and see which one you like better. And really, there are a lot of things you can do with oranges beyond just the syrup that you might find find interesting. A quick 
Google search brought up sunny southern preserved oranges. This is basically orange slices that have been cooked and you've added lemon juice and sugar and then maybe a little bit of cinnamon, cardamom, clove, something of that nature. And then you fill jars hot with those and water bath can them for 10 minutes and you end up with these interesting sort of candied flavored slices of oranges that you can use in cocktails or in baking or just straight up if you like that flavor. I've never done it, though, because I live in Tennessee and don't have a plethora of oranges. The other thing that comes to mind, though, is marmalade. You can make marmalade. So there are a million things, maybe not a million, but there are a lot of things you can do with oranges if you just look around and start asking friends for recipes that might give you a diversity of flavor through the winter months, especially if you end up in a situation where you're not restocking from the store a lot. So I wish I had the problem you have. Hope this helps you out. With too many oranges around, hey, if you try a bunch of recipes, let us know how it goes. You can email me, Nicole at livingfreeintennessee.com. I'd love to know because, as I said, I don't have the orange problem that you do. That sounds like an orange blessing to me. Next question comes from Ryan or Rion, R-I-O-N. Anyway, the question is, is it a good idea to start a business in the middle of a crisis like COVID? Details. I've been planning and working on launching my handyman contractor business since Christmas. And now I wonder if this is the right time to spend the money to get the business licenses that I need to work in different towns I plan to serve, as well as getting my website, logo, branding developed, and order yard signs. I see this as the perfect opportunity for me to begin my extraction from my J-O-B, which I am no longer enjoying. Cedar Creek Home Repair is the name of the new business. I serve Clark and Cowlicks counties in southwest Washington. And Washington had a really fun time with the whole COVID thing because it started there and got kind of nasty in Seattle from what I hear. Okay, so Ron, Ryan, sorry, um, here's my thought on that. Look around and see from your own stability of, of moving forward if it makes sense for you to start a business right now. That's the question you need to answer. And whether there's a COVID crisis or not, it plays into it because you may have more opportunity because of it, or there may be fewer jobs. But if you do a quick scan, you'll see if there are more jobs. Now, if you are in Clark and Cowlitz counties, hmm, are people moving out into the country from there? Or, and is there enough country for you to help them? Because, you know, we have this sort of step from urban to rural and from a handyman standpoint, when people get into rural settings, they have things happen like what goes on on my homestead on a regular basis. Holy crap, I need to put a big old hole in a piece of cinder block or I don't know how to run fencing or gosh, these gutters need to be rehung. And I know from living in a very rural situation, it's very hard to find somebody who does this kind of work. So the question is, is it that way in Southwest Washington as well? Luckily, I'm from Oregon, so I know what you're talking about when you say Clark and Cowlitz counties. I know there are some rural areas there. So look at where you're serving and where the need is. Decide if you think you can get enough revenue based on how you've set yourself up from a savings standpoint, from providing your own health care or health insurance or a health share so that you're able to stably walk from your job into that. And then if you find it's not quite the right time, consider this, Ryan. Consider 
doing a side hustle approach first, starting with weekends, specializing in something you know people are going to need, whether that be gutter cleaning, window washing, fence installation. I don't know what your specific handyman or home repair skills are, but if you focus in on one thing that looks like there's an opportunity as a side hustle as your first step, that's another way to get started. And I know people who have started by just doing work on Saturday, Saturday only. They get a day off on Sunday. They work their job Monday through Friday. They do Saturday handyman stuff. And pretty soon they see that the demand is so high that they can then transition into more of a full-time thing. So that's a lot of information. I don't know how much the licensure costs you or the business permits. And the other question I have is if you have a business permit in the town your business operates out of, do you really need to have one in the towns you're working in? Right. That's a question I don't know about the state of Washington, but um, I know that here I can just have the license from my county and I don't have to have one everywhere where I operate in the state because that would be an onerous expectation. So I guess what I'm saying is it depends and it boils back down to where you are positioned already from a stability standpoint. It boils down to what your local market looks like. And it boils down to where your skills are as as far as how you can roll that out, whether it be a side hustle first and then grow or just go for it. Either way, the COVID crisis, in my opinion, is not a reason to not start a business. It is just the environment in which you are starting a business. And the more stable you can be and the more self-reliant you can be as things like this happen and the turbulence of the crazy standoffs to your south that are going on in Portland, Oregon, the better off you're going to be long-term financially if you can set it up so you have a diverse source of income. So hopefully that perspective helps. I'm interested to hear Jack's perspective on this one, and hopefully he'll chime in right after this segment. And my last question for today, I'm trying to get a threefer in in just 10 minutes, Jack. This one comes from Tom. Tom says, what to do with extra liquid when fermenting and other sauerkraut questions? Most recipes for sauerkraut mention that the cabbage may not have enough innate water to be completely submerged under brine. The half dozen or so that I've tried recently have all had the opposite problem. In order to prevent leakage, I've had to pour off several ounces of brine after putting the stone on. Can I bottle this and add it back in once I've taken it off the stone? Or does it need to be refrigerated? On a related note, I haven't been able to get two pounds of cabbage in a quart jar, really two pints. So I'm planning on adjusting two, two and a half lids into uh, pounds into pints. I read LBS lids, right? You guys can laugh at me, please, while you're driving. My guess is that I'm not pounding it enough. Finally, for now, does the ferment need to stay under the brine? I've found that once I start using a jar, the brine level is quite low and the top of the kraut gets dry. One of the reasons I'd like to keep the pour off to reuse later is I'd like to pour it back in. Okay, so let's start with what can you do with the brine? You can drink it and it helps with your gut bacteria. Yes, you can store it in the fridge. I would store it in the fridge, though, if you're going to do that, because mold can, the like the white scummy mold can develop, and over time that can turn into the dark black mold you don't want. So the best way to do that is just get a little mason jar, throw it in your refrigerator. Now, as to your problem of not being able to get two pounds of cabbage into a quart jar, you're using two pints. If you're using two pints, it's going to be a little bit less cabbage because you need headspace at the top. 
and, you know, one headspace versus two headspaces. The other thing is these ratios that we talk about in recipes for something like a ferment are not necessarily dialed in stone about exactly how it'll be. If you're cutting your cabbage into wider strips, it's going to take up more space because there's more sort of airspace around it versus if you're doing really tiny strips or using a food processor. As to whether you're pounding it enough, I don't think that's the issue. When I ferment, I salt my cabbage and sort of mix it in with my fingers in a big bowl, and then I pack it into the jar, and I just use my fist in a half-gallon mason jar. So it's a little bit bigger than your your pints, right? Um, and what I find is that sometimes in some cabbages that are not as wet as other cabbages, the brine won't come over the top. And if I walk away for about three hours and come back and, and just push it down with my fist, that the salt has leached out the moisture enough that I have enough brine. However, when you're using a mason jar, you want something that's pushing it down. And you said you're using stones. I don't know exactly how that works. I like to use one of those four-ounce jelly jars inside a wide-mouth mason jar, and I'll take the extra brine and fill that up in the jelly jar so I get the... um the sauerkraut in there and then I get that jar and then I squeeze the lid down and that holds the sauerkraut under there. It's very important that that stay under there. Some ferments will get dry and yes, you need to add brine back. If you've put some in your fridge, you're good to go. And this year, and I got this from Oxy over on the Zello channel, um, Ball released a little internal thing with a spring that holds your sauerkraut down um, below the surface, which is kind of cool. And I haven't played with that yet, but I'm about to do sauerkraut again now that it's a little cooler in my house. So really what I'm trying to say is uh, don't overthink your ferments. Ferments are super easy. You're adding salt and some spices to some cabbage. You're leaching the juice out of it and you're keeping it below that surface, taking off the white scum if you need to. Consider getting bigger jars though, because going at the pint level may be part of why you're you're having to use a probably multiple jars, I would get, imagine. Like, consider going to an actual quart or to a half gallon. That'll get you further. And then as far as storage, I prefer to store mine in the fridge so that it slows down the fermentation and I still get the benefit of those helpful bacteria in my gut. You can can it, and it does mean that the cabbage has broken down from a digestion. It's a little easier for your stomach to digest than raw cabbage, but then you don't get the beneficial bacteria and that's kind of part of the point of a ferment. That said, I still can some if I've made way too much sauerkraut because it just tastes good with bratwurst, in my opinion. Tom, I hope this helps you out. If you have any other questions, you can reach me at livingfreeintennessee.com. That has a contact form you fill out or email me, Nicole, at livingfreeintennessee.com. Guys, thanks for the questions. I hope I got this in in 10 minutes. Jack, if I went over, I'm sorry, but... I wanted to bang out these three questions and get back to these guys as soon as possible. Make it a great week. It's a great answer, so I don't I don't have a lot to add, but what I what I would add is I think that a lot of people that want to do this type of business, what you need is an anchor an anchor product. Something that gets you in the door. So when we, we had kind of tossed around the idea of actually building our little farm here into something commercial, that's why we started with the duck eggs. And we, we decided we just didn't actually want to be in that business, uh, especially with the property we have. Like, this is a hard property to be in that business on. I mean, basically, I'm sitting on top of a rock slab. So when I started looking at the whole thing, I realized that 
either, I'm either a professional podcaster or a professional farmer. Right, so you might be wondering, where the hell am I going with this? Well, here's where I'm going with this. If I wanted to build a revenue stream of farm income, I would definitely be doing the ducks at, at scale. You know, maybe not quite to the scale I was, but I would be doing the ducks. Here's what the ducks brought me with very little effort. The ducks brought me informed, concerned, nutritional-based consumers who were willing to pay a premium for a better product than they could get in a store. It just brought them to me. By advertising them and marketing them the way that I did, here's what we do, here's how we do it, here's how we're different, come give it a try. And actually producing a product that met the expectations, we built a book of 40, 50 regular customers with not much effort. Didn't It made some money when we were doing it full scale, and it was not profitable when we brought in labor. It just wasn't. There was no way to do that. It wasn't sustainable that way. But what it did is it made us a book of business. We also had some of the really upper-end restaurants in Dallas-Fort Worth come to us. We didn't have to cold call them, didn't have to get an appointment with a chef. And once you had a restaurant, like one of our restaurants was called I Declare, and it was one of the top new restaurants in the city, if you did talk to a chef, they would at least consider what you were saying as soon as you said, well, you know, I declare and Cadillac Ranch use our product. Oh, what do you have? So I would have used that as an anchor product, and I would have then built product, and I, this is what we thought about doing, we decided not to, to sell to our market. We could have easily put in some racks and started doing microgreens and greens hydroponically and sold to every customer, we could have sold a bundle of salad a week or every two weeks as well. And we could have built out from there. So what would be a good anchor product for you that would bring you customers? And what it makes me think to look into is, I don't remember what the business is called, but in Washington, up more towards Seattle area, Brian Norton was on the show earlier this year, and he was doing the business of basically installing sheds. So he got all the tools he needed. And like when somebody goes to a Home Depot or a Lowe's and they say, I want this 8x8 tough shed, you know, you take your truck and your trailer and you go install it. And Lowe's gives you that business, right? And I don't remember if it was connected to Lowe's or Home Depot or whom, but he was doing a few a week. Now, what you just did, you just got to contact a customer with no work on your part. And this would be a great side hustle. You know, maybe you do it two days a week. And and that's just how you get started. Maybe it's a guaranteed, not guaranteed, but maybe it's a pretty good, you know, base income stream as you're doing this. Well, when you get there and you talk to the homeowner and you set it all up, say, well, I work with my employer to do these. So I, I could never do another one of these for you because that would be unethical. I'd be circumventing them. So if you need another one, you can get in touch with them, and you know maybe you get me, maybe. But I'm a handyman, and I do all kinds of other things. Here's my card. And is there anything that you know we can look at maybe right away? We getting you a price on, even if you're not ready to do it yet. Now I'm getting paid to do sales calls. I'm also getting paid to do sales calls that come with an automatic demo of my capability. So if you get good at those sheds, I, I was amazed the guy that put one up for us. It was an 8x8, eight eight. he was supposed to be here at noon, and he didn't get here till 3.30, and I'm like, this ain't getting done today. An hour and a half later, he's like, oh, it's done, you want to inspect it? I was impressed. I was impressed. Now, they're designed to go together that quickly, and as somebody that's pretty much all they do, 
And maybe you only do that long enough to build up a customer base. And maybe it's not sheds. But see, that's what I would look at. Is there something that you can partner with somebody to do for people as sort of a subcontractual arrangement where you're still your own thing and everything else you want to do for people, that entity doesn't really care. If it's Lowe's and you're putting sheds in, for instance, Lowe's does not want to be in the business of cleaning people's gutters. Lowe's does not want to be in the business of one-off anything. They really don't. They want to be in the business of a commodity that matches an install, and the only reason they even do the install is to sell the product. They don't really make a lot off of a contractor's labor. right? They sell cheap so, that it, so it looks like they do, but really they're passing most of that on to a cheap end to the consumer. But Brian told me he was making good money on those sheds. You know, not great money, but good money. It was like every one of them's worth doing. Well, again, now I'm going out, I'm talking to somebody who clearly has money and doesn't want to do something for themselves. Right? This is my perfect customer here. I want a shed. Okay, a, a, shed, a shell kit is $1,100, and it's $900 to have somebody install it. Shit, bring that bitch over here and stick it up. Here's $900. I want to talk to you if I'm in the handyman business. You see how that works? So I would look for something like that, some sort of on-ramp, some sort of anchor product that gets you exposed to two or three customers a week that you wouldn't even get to talk to otherwise. And I think if you do that, it's hard to find good handyman. It might not be long before with word of mouth and things like that. You can build up to where you, you might not even want to do the sheds anymore. That's just where I'm thinking. And I'll tell you, Never underestimate the power of doing a really great job for people and going a little bit extra sometimes, even if it costs you a little bit of money. The contractor that just did the doors and new window in our house, I think we've given four referrals for already. And he's not a handyman. These are big, multi-thousand-dollar jobs. And he's gotten four referrals for us because they did everything right. From the day they talked to us the first time to a follow-up with a loose doorknob at the end of it, they didn't drop one ball. And if anybody needs anything done, call them. Call them. We're on their website as an official testimonial at this point. Like, we don't generally do that. And that is money. When you have that reputation, that is money. So if you can use some sort of springboard, that's where I would go with it. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack and TSP crew. This is Dr. Ken Berry answering a uh, question I'm not sure which listener this is from, but it concerns supplements if you're eating a keto diet, uh, specifically magnesium citrate and potassium citrate, uh, and whether these are good. Some people find these to be quite a, a laxative, and so they have the obvious side effect of the backdoor, backdoor trots if they use too much of these. Uh, and I'm going to answer this question and also tell you a product I really like, which I'm not, uh, have no financial interest in, but it works very well and it's very inexpensive. So first and foremost, let's get this out of the way. All human beings need to worry about their magnesium and potassium intake, not just people on a keto diet. The average person in America eating the crap standard diet is deficient in magnesium and potassium in their tissues, but they're able to keep their serum levels normal because they're eating so many carbohydrates, their insulin level stays so high that they retain so much fluid 
that that retains magnesium and potassium so they don't really have the symptoms of it. When you're eating a keto diet, you're going to lower your blood sugar, which lowers your insulin back to low normal, allows, allowing you to diurese or uh, urinate away all the excess fluid. And some people lose anywhere from 5 to 20 pounds of just fluid that they were retaining when they go keto. But then also you, you might start to have magnesium or potassium deficiency sim- syndromes like muscle cramps, muscle twitching, because you don't have that, that 20 pounds of water that used to help you store the magnesium and, and potassium. And so it, it becomes more vital for somebody on low-carb keto carnivore to make sure they're getting enough magnesium and potassium and other electrolytes as well. Keep in mind, our ancestors 100,000 years ago, they drank river water and, and mud puddle water, and they ate the organs and drank the blood of their kills. And all these things are rich in electrolytes. Now, I don't advise you to drink river water, uh, but I do advise you to eat the organs of every animal you harvest, including the heart, the liver, the kidneys, and other things. They're full of electrolytes. But until you're able to do that, I recommend a product called Keto Chow Electrolyte Drops. It's much cheaper than many of the uh, uh, electrolyte supplements out there on the market. And it's a liquid, so you can just squirt it in your coffee. And that's what I do every cup of coffee I have. I squirt a big squirt of Keto Chow Electrolyte Drops in there. I'm getting magnesium and potassium plus sodium and chloride, all four of which are electrolytes and all four of which you need a good supply of. Um, that That's the one I like because it's so inexpensive and um it, it, it's, it has a little salty taste, but it, it's not really bad. Now, some people have chronic constipation symptoms. They tend to be more constipated. In that case, they, they should use a magnesium and potassium citrate. But if people tend to, to have loose bowels, then obviously the magnesium and potassium citrate is going to pose a problem. And uh, I don't notice any bowel issues with the keto chow electrolyte drops. But you would, if you have, if you tend toward having loose bowels, I would use a, a magnesium glycinate or a magnesium sterate, and then you can get uh, potassium and, and other forms besides citrate as well. I hope this helps. Thanks, Jack, for letting me be part of the expert council. I'll talk to you guys next time. So let me just two quick ads. One, most Americans are deficient in vitamin D. In fact, most people in the Western world are deficient in vitamin D. If you take the recommended daily allowance of vitamin D as a supplement, it won't move your blood serum level to save your life. It just won't do anything. But magnesium and vitamin K are both key to vitamin D absorption. So in addition to magnesium, to me, if you're going to be worried about your vitamin D levels, you should be tested for those and keep an eye on them as you're supplementing it, uh, magnesium and, and vitamin K. Uh, and just be careful with K. If too much K, I don't want to go long into this, but too much K can move so much calcium. Like People worry about oh, getting hypercalcemia with vitamin D, and at high doses it is a risk, but it takes a lot of high dose for a long time. K will move the, the, the calcium back out of your blood and into your bones. Well, if you take too much K, some people have had arrhythmias where they've pushed their calcium levels so low that they get irregular heartbeat and short-winded and stuff like that. So be careful with that. So I'm just kind of throwing that as an aside. But the magnesium, my point with the magnesium alone, though, is, is, is essential for so many functions, and one being vitamin D utilization. So just thought I'd add that. With that, let's take uh, one here on pole saws, Oregon versus the wall. 
Hey guys, it's Tim the Toolman Cook from All Seasons Maintenance in East Central Alberta, Canada, back again to answer another question for the expert council. This week's question comes from Greg Madison, and he asks, Should I go with a DeWalt pole saw or an Oregon pole saw? I'm in the process of switching from a Craftsman 19.2 volt tools to DeWalt 20 volt max. I have a new DeWalt 7 piece kit with a few batteries. I also have the Oregon cordless chainsaw, which I love. I'm trying to decide between the two products. I know that you, Tim, gave rave reviews about the DeWalt, and if I didn't already have the Oregon cordless saw, it would be an easy decision. I like the idea of a 40-volt battery with the Oregon, and having a second battery that would work with both the chainsaw and the pole saw is appealing. The DeWalt is $100 less, but that's just for the bare tool. My home is on a little over an acre in Texas, with a few hundred oak trees, plus a few hackberry and cedars. I would also use it at a remote cabin in Colorado where we are clearing low branches in the surrounding forest for forest fire risk reduction. The idea of taking one set of tools, batteries, and chargers for any woodcutting trip is seriously appealing. Your thoughts are appreciated. I'm trying to let the family know whether to get an Amazon for Oregon or a Home Depot for DeWalt gift card for my birthday. Thanks for the great reviews and advice and all your previous expert counsel responses. So, Greg, you are correct. It would be an easy decision if you were heading toward having all your tools in a consistent format. But to be fair, you already have a really, really good Oregon chainsaw. So that really muddies up the water a bit. So let's start with a side-by-side comparison between the DeWalt and the Oregon to see if one is better than the other. In total reach, they both have a 10-foot shaft, giving you an overall 15-foot reach. They both have an 8-inch bar, so that's a dead heat as well. Uh, One advantage the Oregon seems to have is the motor is middle-mounted on the shaft. This allows it to be more balanced when using it, as I have noticed the DeWalt is somewhat top-heavy. The Oregon is just a single unit that slides in and out of itself, whereas the DeWalt has individual pieces that you put together. Now, I'm not recommending this, but of course, if you had two of them, you could put them together to get higher reach, something we do regularly with the hedge trimmer that's mounted on a pole as well. The DeWalt also has a fairly heavy-duty metal bucking strip, which doubles as a branch hook that can pull branches down that are caught in a tree, something I didn't think I would need until I started using it, and now I can't stop. The Oregon doesn't have that same design. Not a huge deal, but it is what it is. The shaft design on the Oregon looks a little sturdier. In the videos I watched, the round pole and the mid-mountain mid-mount motor take a bit of the stress off it when it's fully extended. The DeWalt has quite a bit of flex in the pole when fully extended, and that makes me slightly worried about its longevity. So another thought I had was if there were a DeWalt to Oregon adapter or vice versa, you could get the DeWalt and be in line with your other tools and be able to use the batteries interchangeably. But due to the design, and I did quite a bit of searching online, I wasn't able to find anything. But if anyone's aware of this, Um, and there are adapters out there, please let me know because I'd love to find out. Uh, Again, if you didn't have any Oregon tools, I would say go with the DeWalt, simply because they are such a huge array of tools to choose from, and I'm a huge proponent of using a single system for many things, not just cordless tools. Now, I just picked up a 60-volt DeWalt chainsaw, haven't even had a chance to run it other than for 10 or 15 seconds, haven't cut a board with it, but I did also get two 60-volt flex-volt batteries that are 6 amp-hours. And I ran one of them through my 20-volt trimmer, and I got exactly twice the runtime I get out of my 20-volt 5-amp-hour battery. So that's a choice as well. If you want the longer runtime, you could get the DeWalt pole saw and use the 60-volt batteries in them, as they're completely backwards compatible with the 20-volt pole saw. That is something, another thing just to let you know. 
So I would honestly say it seems like portability to you is a big concern, wanting to take it out to your second location, and there's nothing worse than having to lug two separate battery systems. So in your case, honestly, I really think the 40-volt Oregon pole saw will be great for you. For that extra 100 bucks, you get a second battery to run your chainsaw and a second charger. The battery alone retails for around $130 uh, American, so there's savings there. Plus, who doesn't want a second charger? The Oregon lineup is great for their outdoor gear. So honestly, you can run DeWalt for all your power tool needs around your property and run Oregon yard tools for all the other work you need. Now, I mean, down the road, if your batteries or tools for the Oregon start losing their power or their runtime, then maybe look at switching to the black and yellow. But honestly, I think the Oregon's going to work great for you. All the reviews I watched were really good. People were very happy on it. It seems very similar to the still outdoor gear. So you can't go wrong with that either. I can't wait to hear from you. Let me know what you decide. Uh, follow up with me if you want. Um, fill me in on whatever you choose. Uh, drop me a line uh, at the All Seasons Maintenance page on Facebook, or you can email me at therealtimcook at gmail.com. So guys, thanks so much for taking the time to send me these questions. Keep them coming. I love helping out our community. If you want to know more about what I do, check out our YouTube channel, where we define what it means to be a successful entrepreneur as a modern handyman, sharing tips and tricks, successes and failures in our pursuit for financial freedom and independence. And if you like my opinions on tools and gear, please go by the YouTube channel as well. This month, I got coming up uh, an Intex pool vacuum, a fridge and freezer alarm system, a DeWalt 60-volt chainsaw. And that's just on the next three Wednesdays. Uh, we just hit 250 subscribers, and we'll soon have a contest coming up to support our growing community. So remember, guys, as always, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. So my addition here, number one, I think the mid-mounted motor is something that you can't overlook. The DeWalt has the motor up where the saw is, so all that weight is at the end of that pole. The Oregon has battery in the back, which the DeWalt does as well. And then just before the, 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 the ferrule that allows you to extend the pole, the motor's actually on the shaft. And it's just a, sh or on the, on the, uh, on the, the column. And then there's a shaft that runs through the center of it up that actually drives the saw. That means that you've only got the very lightweight components of the saw at the end of the shaft. That's, that's really cool. There's two things that, Make me say I, I, I really don't have a huge preference here. It's if, if I needed a pole saw right now, I didn't have the little Black & Decker one I have, I would probably buy the Oregon even though I have DeWalt. I'm in the same position. I have DeWalt and I have Oregon. Only because I have the Oregon stuff. But there's two features that seem to be lacking. I can't verify one. The other one I'm positive on, on the Oregon pole saw, that are to me a huge letdown from Oregon. The reason I love the Oregon electric chainsaws, both the plug-in one, which is so stupid cheap, I think everybody should own at least one of those, and the, the battery-powered one that you have, is the, uh, the automatic sharpening feature. The fact that you can just grab that lever and run that thing for a couple seconds, and that, that chain is, like, shaving sharp, I love that. Because it's the number one reason that people are unhappy with the performance of their chainsaws, they let the, get, the chain get dull, And it's not the hardest thing in the world to teach yourself how to sharpen a chainsaw blade, but it does take time, or a chainsaw chain, and it does take time, and it does take some skill. And it doesn't take either with that auto-sharpening feature. Why Oregon decided not to include auto-sharpening with this saw, I do not know. Other than I guess they were trying to meet a price point. Because it would have been relatively easy to do. Now, I do get the fact that it's way up there on the end of a pole, but it, it's I can think about three different ways they could have done it. 
The other one, and I don't think they have this, and if they did, I think they'd make a big deal out of it because they sure do with the other saws. Toolless chain tensioning. So on the, the latest editions of the electric saws, the regular chain saws, where you release the cover plate to be able to take the bar off the saw and all, there's basically a, it's two different, it's one knob, but there's two different parts of it you can turn. An inside and the outside. The inside actually takes it off like you'd be used to where you can take the cover off and take replace the chain, work on it, clean it out, what have you. The outer one actually moves the bar forward and backward to tension the chain. And that means you're sitting there cutting, you're cutting, and you notice it's not cutting quite right, it's sharp. Oh, chain's loose. Well, you reach down, you loosen up one of the things, you turn the other one a little bit the other way, you check the tension on the chain, tighten the first one back up and go back to cutting. It does not appear that this saw has that feature either. It looks like it would be old-fashioned. you got to get it loot. Now, it does have toolless for the cover and, 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 and the clamp down on it. But I still think it looks to me like you would need a screwdriver going from the side and do some sort of tensioning that way. That one to me is an even bigger letdown because at least I can see why you might not do the auto chain sharpening. When they already have the technology and, as far as I know, a patent on it, to not include that feature... That would make it to me, if you were deciding between the two from the beginning, a toss-up. The DeWalt has going to have, I, I expect the DeWalt to have better power. The Oregon has better balance. And at that, it's, it's a wash. Oregon had two slam dunks on their side. They didn't take either one of them. And they should have took one. That's just my thoughts. Let's take another one. Uh, this one. Thoughts on investing in distance education with John Pugliano. Hey, TSP, today we have a very interesting investing question. This comes from Darren in Missouri. So, hey, Darren from Missouri, here's his question. Would distance education technology be something you would consider investing in? And then he goes on to mention a specific company, which is 2U Inc., and the ticker symbol on that is TWOU. So right off the cuff, the short answer I would say is, sure, do it. Go ahead and invest in it. As long as you obey some of the basic diversification strategies, you really don't have anything to lose. You never want to put all of your eggs in one basket. So I wouldn't commit more than, say, you know, one to maybe 3% of my overall investing portfolio into this one stock. And that's because even though the concept or the idea may be great, it doesn't mean that everybody in that sector or even the first Movers in that technology are going to be the ones that dominate in it. Think back to the railroads or to the automobile, computers, whatever initial technology it is, many, if not most, of all the initial entrants into that field get washed out. And we tend to have a normalcy bias or a survivability bias where we, we look at a company like Apple Computer and we say, oh, yeah, I should have bought that 40 years ago. Look at all the money I'd have. Well, that's true, but again, that's because Apple has survived, and think of the thousands of computer companies that have failed. So you definitely only want to take a small portion of your overall portfolio and invest it in a stock like this. And while that may not seem like a lot, think of it in these terms. If you had invested only $1,000 in Microsoft back in 1986, that initial investment today would be worth well over $2 million dollars. So when it comes to these new technologies, if you do hit a home run, even if you just put a very small amount in them, it can still be a big payday. Now, specifically to the company that Darren mentions, 2U Inc., 
What I like about this stock is that it is a real darling of Wall Street, or at least a darling of the of the day traders that are out there. And this would include all the millennials and the other people that are using the fractional trading systems like Robinhood app. It has especially, as you would expect it to, have exploded since this whole COVID hysteria has gone on. It's a very liquid stock. There's millions and millions of shares of it traded every day. Uh, of course, on this downside of the fact that it is a momentum stock, it has great volatility. In fact, I'm looking at a, a chart of it right now, and just in the last week or so, it's down more than 20%. If you want to try and time this, you can definitely make a lot of money quickly. You know, the other side of that coin is you can lose it really fast as well. Now, here's some of the things I don't like about the stock. Number one, they're not profitable. They don't make any money. They haven't made any money in recent years. And from the forecasts I've looked at, they're not scheduled to make any money in the near-term future. They have a negative operating cash flow of oh, something close to $11 million. So basically what that means is, is that for every dollar of revenue these guys bring in, they lose almost 50 cents. Now, they can keep that up for a long time as long as they continue to get new investors and people that are willing to loan the company money. But if that stream of easy money dries up, then this company could go south really quickly. Just recently, they issued a bunny stock. And so, number one, that devaluates all the current shareholder ownings. And then I question in a time right now when interest rates are so low and it's almost like you can borrow money for free, Why aren't they just borrowing money instead of diluting shareholder equity? Well, one of the reasons may be that maybe no one will loan the money. Something else that specifically I don't like about these guys is that they do have a major operational unit uh, based out of Hong Kong. Uh, the problem with that is, particularly with Chinese and Hong Kong listed stocks, you just don't have the transparency and, and quite frankly, you can't believe the numbers. And I say that because if you think back just a month or so ago, there was a German company named Wirecard, and they were, again, one of these momentum stocks dealing in the in the fintech and payment sector. Their stock has grown exponentially, and then overnight they collapsed because there was a lot of fraud and embezzlement, and they were cooking the books through their Asian affiliates. And then, Darren, the other thing that I think you should consider when you're investing in a new cutting-edge technology, and that's, you know, kind of broaden your horizons a little bit and realize that you can invest in those sectors without all the specific risk of just jumping into one high-flying momentum stock, and that's by investing in existing companies that are already profitable, that have a great balance sheet, and they're likely to benefit from the same trend. So let me give you an example of that. In terms of distance education or even the whole paradigm shift that we're going to see in, you know, what's likely to revolutionize the whole education sector, it's not just about having an app or a platform. It's about all those individual components. One of the biggest components, I think, has really nothing to do with the technology side of it, but it has to do with the credibility side of it, which is certification. Right now, one of the reasons that people go to college is to get a degree But that degree really doesn't mean you know anything. I think in the future, having a certification to say that you've been tested and you qualify and you're proficient in a particular set of skills, I think that is going to be far more valuable than just a degree from a university. So think of companies or organizations that have the clout and the reputation to offer certification. Think of also technologies that engage the student, right? Things like gaming software or other types of 
virtual reality platforms that, again, may be used for something different today, like it may be used for gaming, but that same concept of the graphics and the user experience, getting students more interested and able to engage in whatever they're studying. So simulations, graphics software, gaming platforms, those are all, in my opinion, going to be critical elements of the future education process. And then, of course, think of telecommunications and conferencing software. We, of course, know of the big influence that companies like Zoom have had. Now that so many people have shifted to either working from home or students that are getting educated through distance learning, the companies that can provide that real-time communication platform. So it's not just looking at you know canned videos of something, but it's actually real-time interaction between the students and the teacher. So those are some individual areas you'll want to look at, but let's wrap this all up and get really specific. I'll just throw out one name of one company that either dominates or has major tentacles into all those areas that I just talked about, as well as the fact that they are just totally integrated and intertangled into corporate America, enterprise software and solutions. I mean, they dominate all that corporate computing, and at the same time, they offer communication software such as Skype, which has now morphed into their Teams platform, and they own gaming and virtual reality consumer products like Xbox, and they own the largest social media network that's specifically dedicated to jobs in corporate America. That would be LinkedIn. And through that LinkedIn acquisition, they also own uh, what used to be called Lynda.com, which is now LinkedIn Earning, which has a whole library of Video courses, they cover almost every imaginable topic that you want to be educated in. And you wrap up all that together, and you probably know who I'm talking about by now, but I'm talking about Microsoft. Microsoft owns all those companies and applications. They are the go-to corporate enterprise computing solution company. And, you know, for now, more than, I don't know, probably 30 years, they were the original pioneer in offering technology certification programs. So do I think that distance education is going to be a big thing in the future? Well, absolutely. But as far as me and my money and my more conservative long-term approach to investing in technology, rather than jumping into some of these smaller, unproven companies, I'd be putting my money with a big dominant player like Microsoft, which is likely to benefit from these trends in the future and yet offers very little risk today. And then as I wrap this up, I also want to take this out of the investment realm, but just think about these future trends that Jack and I are talking about. Here's the bottom line on all this. Think of all those things that I just mentioned about Microsoft. That just didn't occur through happenstance. Microsoft is setting themselves up to be a dominant player in delivering virtual education. They're doing that because they know it is a future mega trend. So what I want to point out here is that the oligarchs, Corporate America, these big players that run the economy, they know what's happening. They know what's coming. They are positioning themselves so that they can dominate those areas and so they can profit from them. And so if you've got your head in the sand and you think that things like education aren't going to be reformed or robots aren't going to take jobs or automation isn't going to displace a vast number of people, then I think you really need to think again. The trends are coming. It's just a matter of how fast and to what degree they disrupt the current economic system. So, hey, Darren, thanks for asking such a great question. This is John Pugliano from Investable Wealth and the Wealth Studying Podcast. 
right, next up, let's take a look at finding a workhorse SUV with Derek Von Pietro. Hey, TSP listeners, this is Derek from AffordableDCGenerators.com. Got a question about trucks from Clay in Michigan. Let's dig into it. Clay writes, I'm looking for a workhorse SUV for the northern Michigan cabin, and I'm torn between a late-model Jeep Cherokee XJ with the 4-liter straight 6 or a fourth-generation facelift Toyota 4Runner with the V8 06-09, which would you recommend? The car will mainly be used to haul stuff up between our property north and our home in southeast Michigan, as well as just having some fun doing a little off-roading. I plan on doing a small 2-3 to three inch lift on it, slightly bigger tires, brush guard, etc. My main questions are based on longevity and ease of maintenance. I'm not a mechanic by trade, but I am comfortable doing basic maintenance on my car, and I'm looking for some, something where I can easily change all fluids and do most of the standard maintenance myself. I don't need the additional power of the V8. I just read that that 4.7 V8, the 2UZ FE engine will take a licking and keep on ticking, just like the 4-liter inline 6. I like the 4Runner a little bit more, but that is mainly due to some amenities and styling. The total cost up front will be a decent amount more, and I don't know if the 4Runners are worth it. Please help. Now, the Jeep XJ dates back to all the way 1984. Great platform. The first years were a little bit miserable with the engine selection, but that 4-liter inline 6 is legendary as far as reliability, and it makes a good amount of power, too. So the 1999 and earlier models are just as good as the ones after that, up until I think like 03 or 04 they stopped making them. The engine head castings I think are junk and they tend to crack or there's some reliability issues. So the pre-99 has a better head. It's a little bit simpler in the emissions department. Overall, a little bit better as far as reliability goes. Realistically, as long as you get a high output inline six, which I think is like 91 and later, they're all really good. They all come with either a standard transmission, if you can find one, or the AW4 Azen Warner automatic four-speed, which is realistically another 300,000-mile drivetrain part. This one's made by uh, Toyota subdivision, and they're used in, like, Isuzu vehicles, the Jeeps, and all of the Toyota truck platform and their SUVs. It's an awesome transmission. So overall, really good vehicle that could probably go 300,000 miles with no problems. Downside to a Cherokee. You're not going to get great fuel economy with it. They're kind of on the small side. They're, I would say, light duty as far as, like, what it can haul because it's just it's just too light and too small. The upsides to the Cherokee is that it has straight axles front and rear. And what that means in the off-road department is that tons and tons of reliability and durability Plus, you can do some serious upgrades. You can go from a small budget lift to maybe clear some 30s or 31s, or you can go really crazy and spend thousands of dollars and go with a long arm, and you can probably flex the thing out on anything you could possibly drive that onto. So you really got endless possibilities in the off-road department, but I think for hauling stuff, whether that's trailers or just gear inside, I mean, realistically, if you're putting more than two people in it with some gear, you're you're going to be overweight and probably stuffed in there pretty hard. So... I would maybe think about the 4Runner. So let's talk about the 4Runner. The 4Runner is a body-on-frame construction where the Cherokee is unibody. It's built like a car. But the Cherokee is not necessarily light-duty like a car. It's, it's a good truck. But the 4Runner, when you put them side-by-side, side, if, you, if you slide underneath them, is going to be a lot more rugged, is going to be able to do a lot more just based on its size and strength. Now, let's talk about the engines. This body style 4Runner, you're either going to get that 4-liter V6, which I have in my Tacoma, or you're going to get the 4.7 V8. Honestly, go with the V8. You're not going to save in fuel, and you're going to have a lot more power. The 4.7 is an awesome engine. It started life in a Lexus car, and that ended up in their truck platforms. 
and it's just a really awesome engine that makes great power and doesn't really get too bad a fuel economy. I think you're better off with the V8. Realistically, everything in the 4Runner, especially with the V8, is going to be awesome. There's really no weak points in it. Now, the front suspension is going to be independent. So it's a good setup for what it is. I wouldn't consider it anything hardcore or super durable, but it works. You can put a little budget lift in it, whether that's spacers. My Tacoma's got some adjustable Bilstein, so there's actually little clip rings built into the shock body, and you can set some extra pretension on that coil to pick the nose up, especially if you're going to put a bumper or a winch or something like that. Realistically, you're not going to go above two inches. You start to get into needing some aftermarket control arms in order to keep the alignment in spec. And you can sometimes go to like two and a half. Some guys are going three inch because they can get the alignment. But realistically, the half shaft angle is so steep that it's going to burn the boots right off of them. And you're not going to have a lot of down travel in the suspension. So overall, it just doesn't work. And some guys just want to look or they want to get the biggest tire they can. But realistically, one to two inches is the sweet spot if you're going to be lifting that truck. Anything bigger, you got to go with tons of money for long travel stuff. And if that's not your cup of tea, then there's really no point in going there. So... As far as lift-wise, the Cherokee's probably going to be cheaper and easier to lift than the 4Runner. The 4Runner probably fits bigger tires than, than the Cherokee does factory or just a small lift. But I think overall, the 4Runner's probably a better platform for ride quality, you know, space in the interior, comfortability, and all that kind of stuff. So I personally would go with the 4Runner, but you're talking about a vehicle that's newer and side-to-side -side to the Cherokee is probably just worth like three to four times the amount, even if they were like equal years and miles. They just, the 4Runners hold their value, plain and simple. If you found one with the 4-liter V6, it's not bad. I mean, it, it does its thing. It's got good enough power to go. I personally think they're a little groany compared to the V8. The V8 just goes when you step on it where the 4-liter, you got to put the thing to the floor to get it to respond. It's not a bad engine, it's just not preferable when you put that 4.7 right next to it. Realistically, with what you want to do with this, slightly bigger tires, brush guard, a little bit of lift, both platforms you can do that, and it's not going to be super expensive. You can get some spacers for the suspension, you can do basic brush guards, or you can get some, some heavier duty bumpers if you want to put a winch in it and go with slightly bigger tires. Both of those you can do it with no problem. The stuff on the 4Runner is going to be a little bit more expensive, but both have really great available options in the aftermarket community. So th there's no limiting factor. It's really just what your budget is. Personal recommendation, go with the 4Runner. Both are still pretty good. You're up in Michigan. I almost highly doubt you're going to find either one of these in that location that isn't completely rotted out. Cherokees are getting a little old at this point. And the 4Runners do have a little bit of a rust issue on the frame from the factory. So if I was going to go about this, probably would not look in the Michigan area. I'd be looking somewhere where there isn't any kind of road salt in the winter. Well, Clay, I hope that answers your questions. Check out AffordableDCGenerators.com for a simple, easy DC power supply solution. If you have a power system that has batteries, you should be looking at an affordable DC generator to charge those back up. Thanks for the questions, guys. Take care. All right, next up, a question for Earth on Earthworks. And I would send it to who I consider probably the greatest Earthworks artist on the planet. And I'm not, I'm not kidding when I say that, Jeff Lawton. Jeff, let's talk about Earthworks and uh, clay soils. Hi, this is Jeff Lawton here coming to you from Australia. And I have a question here from Andy. And it's in relation to trying to understand... Um, what or if earthworks should be used in clay soil and in a temperate cl uh, climate situation with plenty of rainfall. And um, Andy's put down how he understands the three basic approaches to managing water. 
And it's um, similar but um, a little bit different to my approach and the way I teach. Um, it, and it's a little bit mixed, so I'm going to run through that now. Um, and um, with Earthworks, there are really, in my opinion, three approaches to why we uh, design Earthworks in relation to water. So uh, let's say the first one is to create impoundments which is where we actually um, put in ponds, uh, what we call in Australia dams, but ponds in America, um, sealed bodies of water, uh, sealed earthworks, um, clay, compacted clay um, impoundments. Uh, they're not always on valleys, uh, although that is the most common situation. They can be a, a, a contour pond, um, a uh, ridge point pond, uh, a saddle um, pond, which is uh, between two hilltops on a ridge or on a falling ridge to a hilltop with two dam walls. And um, um, your standard um, valley dam or barrage dam, which is the hardest to build and the hardest to maintain, has the pressure of catchment on it. And um, you also have uh, freestanding earth tanks or turkey nest dams, or they're sometimes called, uh, which are off catchment and you pump water to them. They'll only catch what falls directly inside the earthworks. It's almost like a donut. But these are all impoundments that are sealed. So it's a sealed earthworks, sealed water holding system. Um, and then we have soakage systems. Um, now, the main one is the swale. Um, in the suburbs, sometimes they're a rain garden. And then in, in dry lands and in some other situations, you have ga uh, gabions, which are um, leaky weirs or stone walls um, that uh, let water through but um, create a silt field behind them and soak water into the landscape. So these are these are soaking systems. Swells are on contour. They can be linked to dams, though, and ponds, um, and so they can hold water uh, once they've filled an adjoining pond and then back flood off the level of the pond as it rises um, and then infiltrate that water and the same level of water off a pond. So they can be connected to in, uh, sealed impoundments, but you have soakage systems. So in, in dry lands, you can have a... Um, you can have a, a gabion that uh, builds a silt field behind it. In times of heavy rain, there can be a side channel with a minor gabion that fills to a pond off catchment, which is how you have to do um, impoundments actually in, in dry lands um, because there's such heavy silt loads when there's uh, any kind of flow of water. So let's just make sure that we've got a separation here. You're doing earthworks for sealed impoundments, and then you can do soakage-type systems where the intention is for the water to soak in, and you want to spread the water as far and as long and as wide as possible. So it's the old system of um, um, stop it, spread it, and soak it, and then you have the opportunity of including nutrient, uh, which then dilutes and soaks out as long as possible now the, then there are the runoff systems so the, th the third approach is you actually want water to run away from roads so you don't compromise uh, your road uh, run away from your house sites 
Um, and, and in some situations, you may want to drain the landscape and have drains which run downhill. So unlike swales, they're actually, um, these earthwork systems have slope um, and uh, they don't soak. Um, they actually run out to one side or another. So I don't like it to be more than 300 to 1 in slope. Um, I start getting a bit worried if it's more than 300 to 1. Um, and I pr- much m- much prefer a thousand and one, or, or it, some, sometimes we talk about two percent slope, things like that. So it's a gentle run of water away from something we want to protect, um, not compromise. Um, it may actually be a runoff from the hard surface of a house site, of a suburb, of a of a road. Or it may just be that we want to drain off a system for whatever reason. Usually we want to soak. Now, why would we want to soak a landscape, which is um, a, um, a clay soil in a temperate climate with plenty of rainfall? Although, although um, Andy does say that there is a dry period in the year um, of, of four to eight weeks. Now, that that with soakage systems you're going to get an increased level of absorption gradually increasing over about seven years to a maximum and then you won't get any more so you you will extend the water potential of rehydration um easily through four to six uh, four to eight weeks of dry period and uh, you'll get a little bit more hydration every year now why otherwise would you want to put earthworks through a system uh, with lines of contour soakage mainly because swales are tree growing systems the swale the definitive swale is a tree growing system initially of course it's a water soakage system but that water soakage is intended to grow trees on the swale mound and downhill from the swale mound it's the easiest most passive way to put contour tree lines through landscape now, we do know that, that, and it's very obvious that agriculture in general lacks trees. There's, there's a great deficiency of tree stability through most agricultural, broad uh, agricultural landscapes and, and, and a lack of diversity. So what you get here is the opportunity to, in, to include passive tree lines that are passively irrigated from the soakage systems and increase the diversity through the landscape to whatever purpose, but trees have connections to fungal systems under the soil. Fungal systems are of benefit to the soil in general. If you are grazing, you can increase your forage because you can have hangover forage um, for cattle, horses, sheep, goats. There are all these types of animals can have different types of planted forage that hang over your fences of your divided passive contour tree lines that are created by swales. Now, if you have clay soil, a lot of people think, oh, well, the soil won't soak. What actually you do is, in all cases, whether it's sand or clay, the opposite ends of the scale, you you initially plant pioneer trees to establish your long-term trees of functional productivity you you establish pioneer trees that like the particular soil conditions you're in 
So if you're in clay soils, the pioneer trees you plant like those soil conditions. They're specialists in pioneering clay soil. That's usually clay is usually soil is a little bit acid and obviously um, very water retentive. Um, it'll 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 seal easily and and will not absorb water easily. But when you plant your pioneer trees that love those conditions, they penetrate the soil. They put out their tap from their tap roots. They put out their lateral roots and their hair roots, um, and um, they open up the clay soil and make it more absorbent. And and pioneer trees are usually a lot sh- reasonably short-lived compared to your long-term climax species, but they pave the way for a better root penetration and um, absorption of soil because they go first and not only pioneer the above ground, but they pioneer below ground by um, conditioning the soil with their tap roots and eventually they, and often quite quickly, they die out and leave these tap roots and lateral roots as compost corridors in the soil. And the opposite happens in, in, in sandy soil. They're extremely sandy soil, you're using pioneers that, that like sandy soil, they go down and they put in their tap roots and lateral roots and hair roots out and they actually make the soil um, less absorbent and hold more water to the surface. So opposite ends of the scale can be achieved from clay to sand because of the pioneer tree interaction with the conditioning of the situation. So there are all these benefits you're getting. We know that we can have 20% of the landscape in shelter, 20%, one-fifth in shelter, and lose no yield from either crop or animal production because they're, they're, you're, you're taking the stress off the landscape. You're taking the stress of too much sun in some climates or too much um, shelter, uh, not enough shelter from, from cold climates. Um, you're creating sun traps, you're creating shade traps, you're creating all this diversity of conditions which um, create a, a, a moderated landscape plus uh, you're reducing evaporation, you're reducing wind stress, and you're adding organic matter to the soil and you're conditioning the subsoil. So there are so many benefits to adding the trees through the landscape, particularly if the 20% of trees that you're adding are out in contour lineage. So these are all the benefits of approaching uh, earthworks for water um, design through approach it from one retention, two soakage, three runoff, and you can't go very far wrong. Now you you can you can go into key lining in the interswale. Of course, you can only key line through a landscape prior to planting trees, not after planting trees, um, and um, otherwise you can only continue key line ploughing, uh, running slightly off contour out to the ridge. Uh, while you have pasture, but one of the disadvantages after you have um, a um, well-conditioned, decompacted soil, 
your fungal webs that come out from your tree belts, which are so beneficial out in the landscape, I mean, under the pasture or under the crop, and adding, uh, harvesting phosphate, bringing it back to the tree lines, dropping that as organic matter, which then, again, the, the nutrient from the, the mulch then is um, diluted through the whole landscape with each rainfall. Those long hyphal fungal webs get cut by the by the the key line plow in uh, during not during establishment but after establishment when you're getting into a more climax system so i think you can definitely start with a key line but you're better off then going to uh, an agro plow or an aerating plow which is more of a, a spade spiked roller which just leaves little tiny spikes or little tiny spade uh, slots and and not long lines which inevitably um, inevitably cut through your fungal webs so there you go Um, that's the way I look at it Uh, that's the way I design Um, that's the way we get really good results and um, you end up with uh, a functional landscape a moderated landscape, a more diverse landscape, a landscape that's very well hydrated, but also a very, very beautiful landscape. And these these, uh, um, uh, are landscapes that people really appreciate uh, for all their functions, but also their aesthetics. So I agree with every word Jeff said, and i got nothing to add. I mean, uh, the student does not add much to the master, I guess, is is that one. But here's a different way I want to come at this for people, real short, and just something to think about. When all these ideas, I got sand, I got clay, I got a steep pitch, I got a shallow pitch, I I got this much land, I got that much land, I want ponds, I don't want ponds, it rains a lot, it doesn't rain a lot. Stop. Those are all really important things in a property analysis. But when it comes to the question of do we or do we not put in earthworks, and more importantly, if we do, where and what kind do we use? When we get to that question, we need to start out with what do we want this property to do? What do we want this property to be? And what does it look like if we do it with earthworks? Instead of do we do earthworks or don't we do earthworks, if we wanted to use earthworks to accomplish what we had, what would the property look like after the earthworks were installed, and would that be beneficial to how we would want to be able to access things on the property? Because we can, if we're not careful with, earth, with earthworks, we can we can design access out of a property. Right? Water, access, structure. Those are your three biggest things with any property. The structures and where they go, water for the property, and access on the property. Those those are the three biggest things that you have got to think about. Because then everything else goes around that. If it's livestock, okay, how do we access the livestock? Where's water for the livestock? And where do I live while I'm not looking at the livestock? And where is the structure for the livestock if the livestock have a structure? How am I going to manage livestock? Am I going to do a paddock shift rotation? Am I going to use an electrode net? What am I going to do? And Jeff covered a lot of that, but I think the problem is people all come at this concept of, well, my property is blank, and therefore do I do swales? Those two things, actually, I don't even think those two things mostly, sometimes they do, but mostly they don't go together. Because unless your property is complete and total slab rock that you need dynamite to make a swale on, a swale can be used to good effect 
on almost any property if you actually want the effect that the swale will give you. A pond, other than here, where you can't really dig a hole, even though I gave it all, um, can be beneficial on almost any property. I can build a pond almost anywhere. I can build a pocket pond on a steep slope and get it to hold and be safe and prevent it from taking on too much water. And I can manage it. I can, I can make it. But do I want a pond? How much water will it hold for how long? Will it run dry? Will it See what I'm saying? Like, So you have to look at what do I want this property to be when I grow up? And I think a lot of people would do well to design their property. You don't have to do like really fancy drilled down design, you know, kind of bubble design, draw the swales out about where they would be, think about your access, what that would look like. Design it with extensive earthworks and without on paper. And you know what we call that paper in the design world? So that we'll let go and just do, we call it trash. It's one of the biggest things I learned from Dave Jackie. When you're doing design work on paper and you're just roughing out a design, call it what it is. It's trash. No matter what you come up with, it will not be your final design. It is so that you can think and realize, what I, what am I doing here? What am I doing here? And what will this cause to happen? And do I want those things to happen? And if you do that, you'll stop, well, but I got clay soil. Like Jeff said, it doesn't matter. Clay soil? I wish I had clay soil instead of rock. I'd love to have some clay soil. I'd be building the shit. I'd have four ponds on this property in the ground ponds if I had clay soil, at least, on three acres. And I'd have swales interconnecting all that shit. And I'd have overflows and everything. I, yeah, I would love that. It doesn't matter. But do you want that landform? What do you want to be when you grow up as a property and then use the right design elements to achieve that goal? Versus, let's start off from the concept of do we swell or do we not swell? If you if you were going to get a car, it, you probably wouldn't start off with do I want turbocharged intercooled V8 or a V6. You'd probably start off with what kind of car do I want? What do I want the car to do for me? If I want a sports car, I want a sports car, you know, engine and drivetrain. If I want a utility vehicle, I want a utility vehicle engine and drivetrain. If I want to save gas, then I want a small motor commuter car, right? So that's how we make all of our decisions. So we turn to land design and we, we just kind of throw that mindset away. And I don't think that makes a lot of sense. With that, let's talk about my question. And my question today is on the keto diet as it pertains to gardeners, especially this time of year when the bounty really starts to come in. Derek says to me, do you have a keto-friendly recipes for garden abundance? Background, I have the biggest garden I've ever had in years due to working from home now. I do not miss my 90-meat commute each day. My boss seems like he'll be accommodating in the future. Anyway, some things worked well and some didn't. A lot of bugs due to mild winter. But I have surplus tomatoes are doing well with lots of bug damage. But my favorites are BLTs, caprese, and pasta sauce. That seems kind of out for uh, keto. Peppers, serranos, jalapenos, habaneros producing well. But I think I will plant more next year. Can or dry. Butternut squash. I have 50 to 100 squash. Usually soup or pasta. Jerusalem artichoke stock are 15 feet in the air. Um, so this is the thing to understand about, let's start out from just a pure keto standpoint. So we're talking somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 net carbs. Um, this is during a lot, like you need to lose weight. You're in a major intervention phase. You're in about, about 20 carbs. Your fat needs to be up in the 70 to 75%. 
and then the balance comes from protein. There's nothing you gave me that you can't eat. You just have to count the carbs. So when we start using tomatoes in that world, instead of caprese and pasta sauce, we need to be using, you just count the carbs, and you can make some pretty good different pasta sauces and all, and keep the carbs rather low if we don't use too much of it, and use things like uh, zucchini noodles for your pasta. You can do that. BLTs. I really recommend, and I don't want people to get too reliant on these, but the carb-balanced tortillas, when you put some butter on those and toast them in a pan, they are amazing. And I have been enjoying some, some BLTs using those. And I'll use like one, so that's three net carbs, butter on both sides, cut it in half, and I'll do bacon with some cream cheese, believe it or not, and then some thin-sliced tomato. And, you know... An ounce or two of tomato is not going to put you way up over on your carb limit. And then, you know, arugula on that sucker instead of lettuce is awesome. So, I mean, there's all kinds of ways. With tomato, I'll usually use two to three ounces of tomato on a salad, and I do weigh it when I'm in loss mode, okay? Peppers are just, you can do whatever you want with them. Peppers are so low in carbs, especially when you get into hot peppers. I mean, you're not going to eat that many hot peppers, right? As far as can or dry, you can do either one. I have I have not canned a pepper in a very long time. I don't think it's worth doing anymore. Um, I, if I want like a sauce or something, I'll do like a fermented pepper sauce or something like that. Dehydrating is my number one way to preserve hot peppers because they can be you know rehydrated back into soup, stews, and chilies. They can be thrown in a coffee grinder and ground into a powder. They're just a lot more versatile to me. My problem with peppers is once you can them especially if you're doing like a pressure can of them so that they are safe to can as, you know, not pickled, they're just ruined. There's just nothing left to them. If you're going to can peppers, I recommend that you do a kind of a pickled pepper type thing where you can do a water bath can and not completely cook the living shit out of them. Butternut squash. As long as you weigh it and count your carbs and keep your carbs right for the day, my suggestion with butternut is cube it. Uh, and drizzle it with like bacon grease and herbs and roast it. Soup, you can do it. Just you gotta formulate out what the carb count is and keep your consumption to a small amount. And you gotta let go of what does everybody do with butternut squash? Apples and onions. That's a no go. That's a no go for a regular everyday life. Right, Because if you're eating tons of butternut squash soup made with onions and apples, your carb in there is going to be crazy. It's going to almost be ounce for ounce freaking as bad as um, Coca-Cola. I mean, really, do the math and you'll see what I'm talking about. Jerusalem artichokes. Jerusalem artichokes actually have a fair amount of inulin. Um, so a lot of the carbohydrate in Jerusalem artichoke is not that digestible, but a lot of it is. You can certainly eat too many and kind of push yourself off with that. I talked about those yesterday as a survival food. I think the best way to use those is going to be, you know, the one you're going to use, wash it, use a mandolin or a box grater, that one uh, long blade on a, on a box grater, thin sliced, small amount, weigh it at least until you kind of know what an ounce to an ounce and a half looks like, and salads. That's going to be your best way to use that. Now, let's turn the page a little bit here. Because we're talking about 20, I think most people will find when they run their numbers, their carb limit, net carbs, is going to be somewhere between 18 and 27 carbohydrates. And I don't care what the app says, if you are seriously overweight, 
You know, we're talking 40 pounds or more overweight for, for, for uh, just about anybody. Um, you're more than, more than 10% body mass index above the obese number. You need to be under 20. I don't care what the app says. And you need to be religious, and you need to weigh every stinking thing, and you do need to count cal calories. I don't care what Ken Berry says. I completely disagree, and he said he's got studies, and I still ain't seen one that proves me wrong. And I'm not going to see one because there isn't one. And I completely agree with his take on counting calories is unnecessary for people who are reasonably close to their ideal weight and in maintenance mode. But when you have been abusing your body for 20 years and you've accustomed your body to overeating by 2,000 calories a day or more, I don't care how much you cut your, your carbohydrates, you are going to stuff your effing face and you can still eat too many calories. And there's a certain amount of calories in a, a pound of human body fat, and you can't exceed that number daily and expect to lose it. It's not going to happen. So you have to do that. I'm going I'm to become soft jack in a second. I'm being Nazi jack on this right now because I'm telling you, if you convince yourself this is true and you weigh 300 pounds and you don't count calories and you don't get religious about this, you don't use a tracking app, you don't do it, you can still lose all that water weight that Ken talked about earlier. And you can go from 300 to 280 and almost lose no fat. And you convince yourself it works. And then you kill yourself because you keep eating too much. Then you frustrate yourself because it doesn't work. Then you say keto's not for me and you go back. And you get worse and you get fatter than you ever were. So don't do that. Be religious with it. This is where I get into soft jack. As you approach your target weight, you can back off of that. But when you do what I'm about to say... You should go back to it. So let's say you get your weight and your health where you want it. You are pleased. You're like, if I can maintain this, I'm good. Most people can probably eat 80 carbs in a day. Three Now, if you're diabetic or something and you're using this for diabetic management, especially a type 1, this may not be the case. Most healthy people, once you've gotten yourself healthy, can probably eat 80 carbs in a day Three days a week, keep their other four days down under 28 to 20, somewhere in there, manage their overall eating pattern, and, and, if, and not gain any weight. If, if that 80 carbs doesn't come from a Snickers bar. You have your little bit of junk here and there that make up that 20 carbs, and you let yourself have something here and there once in a while. Okay, that's fine. When you start adding carbs on those other uh, alternating days, 100% of those carbs should come from the kind of food that you're asking about, Derek. Whole foods. So maybe you make up that classic batch of butternut squash soup, but you pare it down just a little bit so that you can have a big steaming bowl, and with everything else you've eaten that day, you're still keeping your carbs under 80, and you go ahead and you have that but you don't do it two days in a row. So when we make our big pot, we want to probably break it down into portions that if we have a two-person two household, equals each portion that we freeze equals two. Can it, freeze it, whatever. We take it out. We have that with lunch or dinner that night, and we don't have it again for a while. And maybe two days later, then we can have, you know, maybe we go ahead and we make something that's more like a, a pasta sauce and there's enough tomatoes and peppers in it that it kind of bumps up the carbs, we still don't go out eating you know, pasta noodles. Maybe we do something like you take that butternut squash 
and you make spiral noodles out of it or something, or you take a zucchini and you do that with it, or spaghetti squash or something like that, or make your pasta sauce and then realize you live in the modern world and your life is pretty good and your pasta sauce goes on Italian sausage. The re let's think about why pasta and sauce became a big deal. It's, it's not a big deal in Italy, by the way. Sauce, uh, pasta is very lightly sauced in Italy. But what we do here in the United States, Italians think there's something wrong with us, and they're not wrong about it. Um, this was, a lot of Italian immigrants said this, but it was big in the Northeast, where it all genesis People were, didn't have any money. And they might have a pound of hamburger. And that pound of hamburger had to be stretched for four kids and two adults. So you ground it up, you made a huge thing of meat sauce, which was sauce with some meat sprinkled in it by the time you did that. And you made a huge bunch of pasta, so you had cheap calories. That's why it existed. Back then, if Dad would have come home and Mom said, well, I got sauce on it, he would say, oh, pasta again. She said, no, we had a windfall, and everybody gets three sausage links with sauce. Okay. They would have been upset about it. They still might have wanted some bread to dip into it or something. But you see what I'm saying. Use meat in place of your pasta. Use meat in place of just about anything that is the high carb thing with your vegetable or your or, or your your you know like lack of a better term fruit because tomatoes are really a fruit. And then think about other things you can do. Like man, I'm telling you, I have no. I might have said it to like you guys are tired of hearing it, but I'm in love with cauliflower rice. That is a go-to for us whenever you want something that kind of sucks up a sauce or a juice. So tomatoes. Hot peppers, meat. Right there you should be thinking kind of gumbo, jambalaya, like all different kinds of things you can do with that. Maybe even a little roasted squash in with it, side of cauliflower rice, spoon that over, meat on top. You just need enough of that cauliflower rice to be able to hold that sauce and get that what we're so used to with rice, pasta, potatoes doing for us. Now, let me, and that also means that on a day that's your 80 carb day, and I'm going to talk about how to get there and know if that's okay first in, in a second. But if you're there, then we need to think about the other things we're eating that day. So, on the days that we're going higher in our carbs, this is again for maintenance, those are days we got to be good little boys and girls with no junk food, no alcohol. Right? I, even if it's in our carb limit, we're not going to be, you know, stealing four of the kids' gummy bears. And we're not drinking two old-fashioned cocktails at night. We're not doing it. They don't go together. We're asking our body to deal with more sugar. We're not going to do that. This is not the day to eat your keto fat bombs and stuff like that. These are the days to be more rigorous with the other food. Now, here's how to do it and how to do it right. Let's say you've gotten to your maintenance phase. You've been sticking around 20 to 30 carbs. You're liking what I'm saying here. You want to move to more of like a, a, a paleo-keto alternating schedule. And you want to know, how do I get there? you got to go back to keeping portion control and maybe not restricting your calories but limiting them. All right. So instead of now, now being at a 20% deficit, we're kind of at a stasis level. And we don't need to worry if we go over 100 or even 500 calories on any given day. But what we need now that we're going to change what we're eating. And what happens, you start eating things that are higher in carbohydrate, you get a more visceral 
response. You, you'll eat more, right? Your, your uptake will go more. So what you have to do then is you go back like you did in the beginning. You get that keto app, you open it up, and you track everything that day, and you limit your portions. And you do this for about a month or two. And while you're doing that, you go like two, three weeks, and you go from your 20 carbs to 40. And the 40 carbs are on your, we call it a paleo day versus a keto day, right? We're going to do that. At the end of at that two to three weeks, do we gain any weight? You know, if it's a pound, you weigh every day. If, it's a, you're, if you fluctuate a pound or two all the time and it doesn't really change, you didn't gain weight just because you happen to land on your up day, right? So you know that worked. Now maybe you decide, I want to see, can I go 60? And you do the same thing about three weeks and you keep that control the portion control, the carbohydrate control, and we don't do back-to-back -back days of these higher carb loads. And I think anybody, once you get to 80, I don't care if you can get away with it, don't. Right? And it doesn't mean that because it's a day you can have 80 that you need to have 80. It means you need to stay under for that day. So you, you maybe you're going to hit 55 that day. Okay, fine. That's, that's an upper limit. When I tell the expert counsel, I want your segments to be five to seven minutes. You can have ten. I don't want every damn one of them to be nine minutes and 59 seconds. Right? you got to think about it that way. Like, on these days, I can go higher, but if I don't, that's good. The reason you're bringing the app back, the portion control back, the complete Nazi management back to it for a few, few weeks to a couple months, you will train yourself that you'll be able to control your portions. All of a sudden, you'll be in a, a rhythm where when you make a salad and it's a day where you can have some additional things, like throw some artichokes on there, some extra tomatoes and peppers, you, you're not sitting there with your scale anymore. You know what it looks like. Right now, I don't sit and weigh things anymore. I don't count my calories anymore, but I'm also still sticking down into that, that 20 to 27 carbs net a day. If I want to go up, and I'm not ready to yet because I'm still not really at my target. I'm probably about to go back to Nazi again and take about another eight pounds off. And then I'm going to try what I'm giving you right here. This is in protein power, which is not keto, but it's still a low-carb thing. This is, the, this is their, their phase three, determining the maintenance load. What I've modified now from a full understanding of how all this works after a year of doing it is, I don't care if you can have 60 to 80 carbs a day and not gain weight. You're probably It's not probably the best thing for your hormones, your insulin level. And remember, if you lost a lot of weight doing this, we all of us that were significantly overweight and lived that way for a long time like I did, we've done some permanent damage to our bodies and to our systems. And what may have been like, what may have kept us completely healthy if we started living this way when we're 20 But we didn't, and we abused ourselves for 20, 25 years, and then fixed it, we may not be able to go back to whatever that was. So you have to really be careful as you bring that number back up. And as soon as it has, as soon as it starts, like you're ending the week two pounds up, and that's not normal, pull it back down 10 to 20 carbs. See how that goes? And then lock, that's, that's my upper limit on my off days. So we got four days on a pure keto, and we got three days on more of a primal paleo in that model. And that doesn't mean we have to use all three of them either. If this, if this, it, well, there's nothing wrong then with saying, "Hey, man, I got big old pork roast in there, and that's enough for tonight, and I'm going to be carnivore this week." Even that's fine. But having that ability to flex through back, and it, you might find, okay, I can do this, but I can't do it three days a week. I can do it two. It depends on how it affects you.
So that's that's my thoughts on that. Hopefully that helps out more than just some recipes, but how to actually think of it. It's not about recipes. It's about it's about the macro and micronutrients that you're consuming and the amount of calories. So I'm with not counting calories, but not when you're fat and overweight, and not when you're making a change after you've corrected that, because it becomes real easy to all of a sudden be overeating by 1,100 calories a day if you don't keep an eye on it. And I know Ken's objections. I know them all. But, but does it really that many? Is it? You know, it's all an estimate. But when you use good estimates over time, they aggregate average out. So it's the it's the best system we have to keep an eye on this. And I'm also cognizant of something that I think a lot of people lose sight of. Every time you're telling this to somebody who used to be 60, 80, 100 pounds heavier that fixed their life, you're basically telling an addict they can have a little bit of dope again. And if you're going to do that, do you have to be really tied in the control of that medication? We start seeing food as medicine, we start to think a little bit more about what we put in our mouth. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. I want to remind you, if you like this show and the work that we do, uh, you can uh, help us out by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. When you shop there, no matter what you buy, you help support us in the work that we do. My item of the day today is the book that I co-wrote with Dustin DeFriss called The 1% Effect, Sell Your Home Fast uh, at Market, or Sell Your Home Fast and at Asking in any market. And this is my system that I developed for selling real estate. It works beautifully. If we made this book into a, a really long-form sales letter and, a, and a, a, a flushed it out a little bit bigger just for the sake of making it look good and made it some kind of quick sell online fast money thing, and it was uh, really expensive, like $99.99 or something like that, nobody that bought it would ask for their money back. And you know how much it costs you? Zero dollars on Kindle Unlimited if you have Kindle Unlimited. And if you don't, uh, you can get it on Kindle for $2.99. There you go. So, I mean, and I, I really mean that. I think that if you paid 80 bucks for this, you'd get your 80 100 I think if you paid 300 bucks for it, you'd get your money worth. Um, you sell one house using this method. And if you can't make two ninety nine more on that house, I don't even know what to tell you. You shouldn't even be selling houses. That's all I can tell you there. But check it out. Remember, you can always help us by doing your online shopping at T-Spaz. So I got an email from Paul Wheaton today, too. I wanted you all to know about this. You all can get um, his movie, uh, his video that he put together called Building a Cobb-Style Rocket Mass Heater. Um, today or till tomorrow at 6 o'clock, I think, is when it runs out. It's like a 48-hour thing. He told me about it late yesterday. So I didn't find out about it until midday this morning because uh, that's when I decided to batch through my email. But um, he says as many people as want it can have it. You go to his forum. You, there's a magic link. I'll put it in the show notes today. I'll also put it in the Daily Mail as well. Um, but you got till tomorrow at 6. You can basically request it, and you get it for a free download. He normally sells it for 15 bucks, and it sells really well. Um, and... Uh, He's, he's basically doing it as a thank you to y'all because he did really good on his Kickstarter that I helped promote. So that, that's just a little side right there. Uh, that 15 buck movie, you can have it for free if you just follow a link and fill some stuff out. Uh, next up, if uh, you guys uh, really want to support me, join the MSB. That's all I'll say about that today. Members, you get your money back. That, I mean, that's, I don't know any better sales pitch than that. You're probably buying stuff, you use the discounts. You get your money back. You support the show. It's 50 bucks a year. It's 18 cents an episode if you think we're worth it. 
Next up, Parlay, Parler. I'll say it however the hell I want. I'm going to call it Parler because it's how it's spelled. I know the French pronunciation would be Parlay. To me, Parlay is P-A-R-L-E-Y. P-A-R-L-E-R is the website, and you'll get there if you try. Consider joining Parler if you like communicating in the kind of format that, that Twitter does. If you're looking for a Facebook alternative, it's not what you're looking for. If you don't use social media, forget about it. Don't worry about it. Don't tell me how much social media sucks. I know you don't like it. i got a whole shitload of people in my audience that like to communicate with me with it, and I think it's important I communicate with my audience. So what we're doing on Parler is if you get on Parler, find me and follow me. Just look for Jack Spierko. I'm the only one of them there so far anyway. And whenever you post something, use hashtag TSPFriends. And eventually I'll find you and probably follow you back if you're posting cool stuff anyway. If you don't post anything other than here I am, I'm using TSP Friends, I may not follow you back. Um, but other uh, members of our community will find you. What I'm asking people to do is use the hashtag, but also like once or twice a day when you're on Parlor doing your thing, click on a post with that hashtag. Look at the posts, look for people you're not following yet, and connect with them. Let's build an actual community there, and we can stop hearing about it being a right-wing echo chamber or whatever other bullshit people make up. It's a tool for communicating. And I'm going to tell you, again, I don't think they're perfect, but I'm communicating directly with Parler Corporate, Parler's founders. And when I say, hey, this thing's kind of messed up, they're like, yeah, we know we're working on it. Here's what we're doing. What do you think? I'm not that important on Parler yet. i got got 1,000 followers as of yesterday. So the fact that they're listening to people of my level on their platform tells me they're trying. So I'm willing to try back. Come give it a shot. With that, let's talk about our song of the day. You know what it is. I've been telling you we're going to go do it for you all week. It's George Thorogood and the Destroyer's Week. The song of the day is Bad to the Bone, and I don't think I need to say anything else about that. Except to spend Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Now on the day I was born, the nurses all gathered round. And they gazed in wide wonder at the joy they had found. The head nurse spoke up, said leave this one alone. She could tell right away that I was bad to the bone.
And I'm like a young girl squeal I wanna be yours pretty baby Yours and yours alone I'm here to tell you honey That I'm bad to the bone Bad 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 the bone Bad to the phone. 